Hello and welcome to Limitless with me, Joshua Patterson. It's the moments in my life where I've challenged my limitations, those very moments that have defined the person I've become and will continue to be. By realizing that this mental barrier is just a test to a greater thing, I've been able to push through difficult moments, both physical and mental. In this new podcast show, Limitless, I interview guests that have changed their worlds by pushing through what they thought they could not, to defy the odds and statistics given. We give credit to the power people have harnessed from their adversities and share their amazing stories, encouraging you to see your adversities differently along the way and how best to utilize them to your advantage. Each week, I'll be talking to amazing people who have challenged extraordinary limits in their own way. If you'd like to hear more, you can find Limitless on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other major podcast platforms. Hello, and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I am Joe Devine, and today I'm joined by Alex Stewart, who is here to tell us who we are supported by this hi, episode. Hi, Joe. Hi, This episode, Alex. and indeed this podcast, is supported yeah. by The Athletic. It is indeed. Uh, it's the home of the best coverage of your club by a world-class team of writers, including many of your favourites from across the Premier League. All of my favourites. All of your favourites. Uh, you should get reading now with a 30-day free trial by visiting theathletic.co.uk forward slash TIFO. Forward slash TIFO. Uh, and you get 50% if you sign, 50% off if you sign up before the end of August. Uh-huh. Uh, the Athletic is the new home of football writing. It is. And yeah. it, 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 it's that, that with that sign-up offer, I think it's the equivalent of 8p a day. Apparently so. So do uh, support the TIFO Football Podcast by supporting the athletic that is www.theathletic.co.uk forward slash tifo today's episode is a special one alex and i had a lot of fun recording it is it. a special one it is a special really one. special we were joined uh, earlier on by david goldblatt uh the uh i was about to call him infamous but that sounds <laughs> no sounds rude the famous yeah david goldblatt uh famed of course for his uh, authoring of such titles as the ball is round. That one on the Olympics. And a new book that we talked to him about today. I do know the titles. I'm doing a joke. Um, what was the name of the book that we are? The Age of Football that yeah. we're talking about today. And he's also done Football Nation about Brazil and the game of our lives. Uh, you can see if you're watching The Age of Football here, it's meaty. So I didn't read it and Alex read uh, a as much as, much as possible as before David Goldblatt arrived <laughs> over the course no, of a few days. Yeah, I was going to say, before David Goldblatt arrived makes it sound like I was like sat in here half an hour before going, fucking hell, I've got to get through it. Well, not including the notes. It's like 600 pages long or something. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's 600 pages long. Yeah. Uh, the ball is round is similarly uh, mammoth. Hold on. Gonna... You can see that as well, that the ball is round. But um, the ball is round is absolutely fucking amazing. Yeah. And I am. I haven't read this, it but is. from the conversation we had today with David Goldblatt, I imagine it is equally amazing. The Sunday Times says, "Don't gate, get Dovey do Goldblatt." David Goldblatt is possibly the best football historian there has ever been. It's it's not possibly. It is. He just he just is. Yeah. Um, but it was a real real pleasure to speak to him. Um, he was a very accommodating and very interesting and. Um, the conversation ranges from football in Africa to Qatar to Europe, uh, much as the book does. 
Um, and we try to get from him a good sense of what the book is about. It's very broad yeah. uh, and wide ranging. So it's actually in some ways, it's like I was reading the synopsis earlier. It's even difficult to imagine, uh, unimaginably difficult to write a synopsis for the book. Um, but he describes it as a sort of second part to The yeah. Ball is Round. So it uh, doesn't mean you need to have read The Ball is Round. Um, if you haven't, though, you absolutely should. It's also what's cool is that the book's not actually out for at least two weeks. I think he the said the 5th of September. September. So by listening to him talking about this, you're getting a kind of sneak peek of everything that's it's in it. It's an exclusive. It is It is an exclusive. There's a pre-order link in the uh, description, by the way, if you want to pre-order. And, and I promise you, and I'm not saying this for any reason other than I believe it firmly to be true, that if you buy it and read it, you will not be disappointed. Yeah. It's really, really good. Um, but as I said, we were absolutely delighted to have him in. It was, um, it was a real pleasure for us, a lot of fun, um, and I hope you enjoy it too. So without further ado, uh, here is David Goldblatt. David Goldblatt, what, what, what book have you written? I've written The Age of Football, The Global Game in the 21st Century. Right. There it is. If you're uh, watching, you'll be able to see Alex uh, holding that up. And um, it's the sequel really, to The Ball is Round, right. Global History of Football, which I published in 2006. Yeah. And most of the stories um, and the narrative of that book peter out around the turn of the century. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that's 20 years ago. And uh, the world is looking very different from the world of uh, the year 2000. I mean, it's remarkable. The Ball is Round doesn't mention Twitter. No. Facebook is not in there and you know the course of global capitalism is looking very different um and indeed the you know the nature of football so it felt like it was time to go back and sort of bring bring us all up to date yeah um and so yeah that's it's it's a survey uh of the state of football everywhere uh, over the last 20 years i think i go you know probably 100 countries get a look in a whole a whole hundred well, probably more, actually. I mean, Africa, you know, like, the world is big and complicated and football is played absolutely everywhere. Yeah. So, you know, Africa, 55 countries, even if you're you know, only doing half of them, yeah. you know, that's 27, that's one continent. So, um, yeah. So we talked uh, about this a little bit beforehand. Alex is uh, full steam ahead reading through the book. It's, it's not out yet. It comes out on the 5th of September, that's I think. Right, right? Yeah. And I've read the introduction... So thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> and I, can I tell you the, the most fascinating thing about the introduction to me? Please. I love this bit because it's something, and I don't want to compare you to David Icke at all, but I, <laughs> I spoke to David Icke once years ago, and uh, something he said to me was that for him, football was a kind of microcosm of society. And something, he said something very similar to something you say in, in the introduction here, which is that football in some ways is, is one of the, the easier industries, I suppose, to... It makes what people are doing in terms of uh, in terms of the structure of the game and uh, capitalism we've spoke about before slightly more transparent than it is anywhere else, or at least it's and there's an easier access to it because so many people are a part of it. Um, what is it about football? Do you think that, that that makes that the case? And presumably, you agree that it's one of the best things to be able to examine the rest of the world through the lens of. Sure. Um, well, good question. I think the first thing is that it's just everywhere. Um, so, you know, comparison always reveals um, interesting things, um, you know, and illuminates 
your own situation, you know, people look up above where you are now. The world is different. Football was organised, played, experienced, consumed differently somewhere else. It puts what you experience as an everyday reality without reflecting on it into perspective. Suddenly, oh, things can be different. It's a kind of jolt to consciousness, I think. And I think one of the things of the last 20 years, the globalisation of football, is that most people in the world who consume football don't just consume one kind of football you know, or play or follow it. I mean, everybody's kind of checking in everywhere in all sorts of ways. And I think that is, that alerts people to the complexity of the world. Um, so I think that's one of the reasons that, uh, that football delivers that. Um, I think in some ways it's, um, you know, it's less impenetrable to most people. I mean, really, you know, if you really want to get to grips with global capitalism, you should probably start with finance. But that's, you know, that's very difficult. So football just sort of opens it up in a way. And people bring a lot of practical, personal reflection and experience and knowledge. You know, it's a very kind of... Mm. I think the football audience, you know, is complex and multifaceted, but there's a lot of <coughs> a lot of reflection, a lot of knowledge, a lot of learning actually going on out there. Um, people remarkably well-informed. Yeah, um, particularly in, in finance, right? I mean, I think people find an interest, as, as it relates to their specific yeah. club maybe in the most case, but they find an interest in uh, financial transactions and the way that that works uh, in, in football, particularly in the Premier League. In a way that they never would with the uh, with the uh, the world at large, or they you know maybe well, you know, the supermarket the that they kind of use on a daily basis. Right. You know, football kind of illuminates it. And I think what I found um, in writing the book is that while economic and political power and institutions have always taken a pretty sharp interest in football, yeah. um, the degree to which they have engaged and indeed colonised football in the last 20 years is historically unprecedented mm-hmm. um, I mean it's sort of more staring one in the face you know when you have nation states making the ownership of football clubs you know uh, a central element yeah. of foreign policy um, when you have uh, you know China um, the central committee of the Chinese Communist Party extraordinarily powerful and influential institution publishes you know, a plan for the rise of Chinese football yeah. that makes the uh, qualification for uh, hosting and winning of the World Cup official markers of social and economic progress. Yeah. Like, phew, what is going on? So there can, can, is can like we start looking then in the face. with what, what's in it? What's in it for them? In that, in, in, let's, let's take China as a specific example. Like, why, why so much government involvement in football? Um, there, there are plenty of other examples. I think Erdogan appears in your book as well. Maybe we can talk sure. a little bit about him. But what's, what's in it for, for, these, for these people? It might be obvious, but... Um, so lots of things. I mean, you know, there's lots of opportunities to grandstand, of course. Um, there are a way of communicating with the public and engaging with the public in a way that very few other things um, seem to offer. Um, Ready-made identities, um, certainly in established football cultures that one can piggyback on or incorporate into one's own story. Um, You know, at some levels, it's just about cultivating a kind of public persona of ordinariness, which is a real difficult for elites everywhere. So Erdogan, for example, the uh, previously Prime Minister, now President of Turkey, you know, has made the playing of football and conversation about football, you know, part of his everyday political persona when engaging with the public. 
Um, and it, he's done very well on that. On that, I did. I found it really interesting that um, in the chapter on Africa, um, where obviously um, Chinese investment is another thing. I've been to Malawi and seen the stadium that they yeah. built there. But you talk about how various uh, African leaders have kind of got behind Premier League sides. Uh, what the, was the first tweet of one particular leader was William Rufo in support the vice of president. Arsenal. <laughs> what's, of what's going on with Arsenal? Um, why do you think those leaders are are showing their kind of street cred or showing their their you know demotic credibility with a Premier League club rather than with an African mm. club? Because you talk a lot yeah. about how there's a huge importance of particularly Premier League football in Africa, often to the detriment of the support of local games. Why are they doing that? Why, why are the leaders doing that? Why are they not encouraging? You know, because against the backdrop of colonialism, you would expect them actually to harness that kind of African power movement and say, no, 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 we need to support your local Ghanaian team or your local Nigerian yeah. team or whatever it is. Uh, I mean, I think partly there is at one level, certainly amongst some of those folks, just a genuine love obsession with football. I mean, this goes very deep in Africa, you know. Um, and so in that sense, they're kind of just like, quite normal in some ways they're part of a bigger sort of phenomena some of them I think there is a degree of grandstanding um, no one is going to engage in African football at the moment um, politically as far as I can see because it's considered pretty much a lost cause I think amongst those uh, political elites um, the hollowing out of sub-Saharan African football economically in terms of uh, Who's play? You know where the players are um, in terms of people. What are, what what people are watching? The choice they have um, through the arrival of satellite television has devastated it, and it is a very very poor spectacle. It is a measure in many countries in Africa. It's an exemplar of what's gone wrong and what the problem is, and no one wants to go there. Is it um, is it almost fair to say? I mean that there are, and this is in no way to criticise some. The reason I went to Malawi was to go on a scouting trip with a a footballing academy there uh, called Ascent Soccer who find young Malawian kids and give them an education if they're good at football and try and develop them. There's also Right to Dream who have a, an arrangement with, or no, in fact, they own Norgeland now, um, okay. set up by a guy called Tom Vernon. But these are, these are Western actors in Africa kind of recognising that domestic football there is in a perilous state and that but there is talent there are players that are worth looking at oh sure is it kind of almost this is perhaps quite a spiky way of putting it but it's a recolonialization of aspects of the african experience but through the vehicle of football um i mean you can consider it colonial i think it's certainly a sort of center periphery thing is that money power and talent are being sucked from the football periphery to the football centre, you know, above all to Europe, but not just to Europe. You know, African players are spread all across Asia, you know, in Indonesia, I mean, in Laos, in Kampuchea, in, uh, in Burma, um, and across the kind of, you know, Arabic-speaking world as well. Um, so I think it's sort of partly a function of, you know, it's a capitalism thing um, rather than just an imperial thing. Um, you know, people, it's a kind of complex interaction between uh, uh, 
European football, particularly the Premier League and African football football cultures. You know, people in Africa feel like they're taking possession um, in some ways of it. They don't feel that it's just being kind of dished out. They feel like active contributors to the culture and is that uh, in the depth of their following and their kind of level of engagement. And presumably harnessing that to... I mean, you talk about the importance, for example, of Didier Drogba in, in the Côte d'Ivoire and, and how pervasive he is as a, as a presence. They're harnessing that to... They're, they're seeing an African player going to Europe and doing yeah. phenomenally well and yeah. kind of almost imaginatively hitching themselves to that. Yeah, absolutely. It's, you know, it, it's one of the um, the great models of social success, you know, um, in, in contemporary Africa is to be a football player and, um, you know, to then come back and play the big man as many of the players do, um, some in a very negative way, some in a super positive way. I mean... You know, Michael Essien has kind of built, a, you know, like a hospital and sorted out the sewage for his hometown. Uh, and Drogba has made those kind of contributions uh, him uh, as well. I think the interesting thing about those guys is that while they um, come back at least some of the time and they do try and re-engage um, with uh, local football cultures, um, the football associations are incredibly reticent to actually let them have any power or significance. Um, because they're a threat, you know, uh, and they bring different standards and different expectations and they're kind of more incorruptible in a sense because they've made their money. Um, and so, you know, you see it at the African Cup of Nations how few African coaches still there are um, when you've got this wave of talent, you know, and a lot of very smart players as well who have, you know, learned the ropes in Europe. Um, but they're not coming, you know, that talent is lost. Um, because they prefer to keep, you know, uh, the untalented but connected in power. Um, and that's one of the great shames. And I think that's also true, you know, of the finances of African football is that um, so few players are coming from Africa, uh, from clubs in effect, um, who then, you know, would get some of the transfer fee back. And that in some way would recirculate into African football and perhaps have infrastructural consequences or, you know, consequences for the, you know, state of play. But mm, someone, you know, like uh, Kanu, who actually had a short-lived, but nonetheless a short-lived career in professional football in Nigeria, kids are now coming out straight out of private academies um, of one sort or another, um, particularly in West Africa, where the bulk, actually, of the best players are coming from. Uh, and very little money is kind of recirculating enough to, you know, people's families do well, agents do well, you know, the academies do well, but you're not seeing that money circulate back. So it's an incredibly one-sided um, uh, encounter uh, between African football and the rest of the world. Is there anything on the horizon other than a pretty negative kind of outcome where actually ultimately domestic football in many parts of Africa just dies. I mean, you know, Ghana is always going to have hearts of oak and so on, but then you can see or you, you could understand so Ghana's had how... very little football of any kind for the last um, year since um, the film depicting, um, you know, all the leaders of the Ghanaian Football Association taking bribes mm. turned into a feature film. I think it was called 18. Um, so Ghana, for Ghana, football has been suspended. You know, right. so even Ghana, where, you know, there is some money, there are clubs of long-established and powerful local identity, um, you know, there are, there are real problems. Is it possible there are good... There are some, you know, there are some good news stories. So, 
it just kind of depends, you know, what what the bar is. So Kenya is a relative success story where you've got the Kenyan Premier League being formed in the first decade of the 21st century, where basically the clubs take control um, and they're all equal partners and equal shareholders in the Premier League. So they all have an interest in basically transparency uh, and doing a deal with each other um, without someone skimming stuff off the top, which is always the way with the Kenyan Football Association. Mm. So the Kenyan Premier League, you know, um, is now well organised, fixtures happen when they're meant to, the level of violence has diminished, um, you know, players are earning a wage, it's not great, um, you know, and it has some sort of integrity and of course it's still competing, you know, on the television with the rest of the world, but it has kind of, it has survived at the, le- uh, at the very least and kind of sorted itself out. Football is happening. Yeah, football is happening, you know, it's a functioning, it's a functioning operation. Um, Somalia is an interesting case where, you know, Somalia has had a well, really tough time for the last 20 years. It's a miracle that, you know, football can uh, that happen, particularly because both the Union of Islamic Courts and then um, Al-Shabaab, who have been the main jihadi groups fighting in Somalia, have had, you know, at best an ambiguous relationship to the game and have often banned it um, from the areas under their control. But the Somali League uh, at the moment is, um, they took the decision, we don't play when the Premier League European football is on. So we're on a different timetable. Um, and uh, local businesses have put up enough money again um, to, um, to cover, you know, you've got a professional league. And they pay on time. Mm. You know, you pay regularly to pay on time. And, um, you know, that means like, you know, Zambians and Nigerians. It's like, yeah. We'll have some of we'll have some of that. You made that point with the evangelical church team. Miracle of we did a video mountain of fire and miracles. Yeah, that actually simply <laughs> being organised, disciplined, and playing paying people on time in African football is actually often enough to achieve success. It gets you a long it gets you a long way. I mean, FIFPRO, the Global Trade Union for um, Professional Footballers. Um, published a report in 2016 um, and um, it was a survey globally and, uh, of players and the conditions under which they operate. And you know, 90% of players in the DRC don't have a contract. Mm. You know, more than half have been you know, um, attacked or suffered some sort of violence or abuse in the course of their professional career you know, from fans or police or... Um, so it is, you know, it's tough and, you know, not getting paid, getting paid late. I mean, this is just the norm. I mean, think, you know, when Nigerians and Cameroonians are going in their droves to play in Laos, I mean, something is not right at home. Mm. You know, that is not an easy place to go, nor is it, you know, to Bangladesh. Bangladesh is paying better than Nigeria. So, yeah, there's um, simply paying something and paying it on time. Um, you know, will get you will get you a long way. I mean, it's worth noting there's a third success story, which is uh, TP Mazembe um, in the DRC, um, which is a sort of older model of patronage politics. But um, when um, the governor uh, Moises Katumbi um, of um, of the region takes the club over in the late two thousands um, and puts some serious money behind it. Uh, you know, sort of like thirty million a year, which in global terms is not not a big deal. Um, 
you know, they come, uh, they make it all the way to the final of the Intercon- of the World Club Cup. Mm. You know, I mean, they were, they were really good. They had, you know, all the Zambians who won the 2012 uh, African Cup of Nations, you know, the best of Congolese players who otherwise, you know, for sure would have been playing in Belgium or France or whatever. And for five or six years while the money was flowing and the politics was stable enough for this thing to happen, extraordinary success. They were very good, mm. you know. Crowds were back in the stadium. Um, I'm not necessarily advocating that as a model for everywhere, but it's an indicator that, you know, with a modicum of stability um, and some money, then African football has, you know, still has actually great, great potential. But the conditions under which that can happen are very difficult to kind of generate. Also, one of the other, I think we, we covered this a few months ago now, but it was a story about. Uh, a particular group of, of agents who were going over to, to Africa, West Africa particularly as well, and promising uh, co- football contracts with Western football clubs in France and Belgium and places to, to young kids who were between the ages of sort of 14 and 17, uh, but asking the families to put up a bit of money beforehand for the travel and for the mm-hmm. agents' fees and all the rest of it. And many of the kids, when they arrived in Europe, it was either, you know, in best case scenario, it was for a, a trial, which was an open trial, and maybe if you had some talent, you might get picked up. But the vast majority of them ended up homeless, living on the streets. You know, the the, the dream of playing was just a total myth, and the communities were being abused basically uh, by a series of of agents. Does, does that did it come up in your research at all? Those sorts of stories. It's I mean, a, wide, it's a widespread phenomenon. Yeah, it's a widespread phenomenon. Thousands and thousands and thousands of kids. Um, and there are a lot of unscrupulous agents uh, and middlemen all over Africa pulling this trick. And there are um, those who, you know, uh, sign up because they really believe it and they've got the football talent. And there are others, you know, it's worth saying, who are looking at it and going, well, you know, I could be doing the Mali, Niger, Libya across to Italy in a boat routine. You know, maybe I'll take my... um, I'll, I'll take my chances. Yeah. And there is a bit of that uh, as well. So there are lots of people who are properly duped and there are others who, um, you know, that's how desperate the situation yeah. has got uh, in West Africa. Um, I mean, you know, you see that in Libya, in the boats of refugees in the Mediterranean. I mean, that's the real sociological phenomenon driving, you know, we'll do anything, we'll take any chance yeah, and people are not fools. They know agents a lot of the time are up to no, up to no good. But you might take the chance as well. No, it's tragic. Yeah, and yeah. is it relatively new as a phenomenon? As in, I mean, it's sort of as a broader point. You said the ball is round finishes around two thousand, and in in your chapter on Europe, you talk a lot about you know ninety eight through to two thousand and six being a, a period of kind of real optimism, you know, UEFA seemed to have it shed together and there were reforms being made, things were moving in the right direction, albeit not necessarily in Eastern Europe where there's endemic corruption and so on, and there are some interesting examples of that. But it feels like kind of as, and this is maybe going back to the first point that we made, as the world has got worse (laughs) in, in like a really basic way, the stuff around football has got worse as well. And the negative aspects of globalization, whether that's piggybacking for human trafficking or money laundering or the involvement of organized crime or just that kind of financial echelon of, you talk about bankers being like footballers. There's this kind of 
super wealthy coterie that are just above the rest of us. Um, that that's all post all this that that period of optimism, isn't it? And, yeah, and the human trafficking is that part of that as well? Is that post human trafficking? I mean, I think really this has been going on since the late nineties. Right. Soldar, who is the uh, NGO that you know deals with some of us this these issues, uh, set up I think a Cameroonian player. Um, you know, is operating in the early two thousand. So I think there are examples of this in the nineties for sure. Um, you know, uh, as with the flows of migrants. You know, it's been growing and growing and growing over the last 20 years. I mean, I think, yeah, it's interesting you pick that up, the optimism or, um, of, the early, of the early 2000s before the financial crash. Because in some ways, while you're right, there are many problematic elements of football that have got worse since 2006. I think it's worth remembering the football itself at the very peak of European football, I would say is this is the most extraordinary football ever played. I think the teams that have dominated the Champions League <coughs> over the last ten years, uh, and the uh, the upper echelons of you know the leading four or five leagues, this is off the scale. How do you quantify that? Well, let's just you know the speed at which the game is being played, um, the quality of the surfaces on mm. which the game being played, the level of fitness of players, the amount they're running, the amount they're sprinting, the number of passes and touches uh, in the game, I think is just absolutely, I mean we know statistically those are all just like much, much higher. Um, I think, you know, you've had got a concentration of talent, I mean even if there was an equivalent amount of talent in an earlier era, the degree of concentration in the leading clubs and the leading competitions is much, much greater. Because, you know, look at, you only have to look at what people's wage bills and turnovers are because the nature of the system at the moment is to concentrate money, you know, right at the top is the 1%. Um, and it's a global transfer market that is more open and more global than ever before. So again, you know, the Premier League's got you know, players from, what, 63, 63 countries? Got Cuba now too. Yeah, so that, you have all of that. Um, I think the calibre of coaching and the sophistication of coaching uh, and the sort of, you know, the scale of coaching, when you think mm. actually what a coaching staff is and does at the leading clubs mm. um, and the use of analytics, I think, has had an impact. <laughs> isn't, uh, isn't that an inherent well. tension in your book, though? between celebrating, I mean, we are in a golden age of football. It, it's really good to watch. And, and, and also there are some really magnetic characters involved and some of the players are, are extraordinary and, and all of this. But it's inescapable reading your book to see how, A, that has happened on the back of some really murky stuff. Yeah. Also that there are vast swathes of everywhere else that are being left behind. Yeah. And is it is it almost not is it almost not a problem to say well you know we're we're living in a golden age of football we should you know what's happening on the pitch is bloody great but but all of this other stuff is you know how can we enjoy what's happening there given how cognizant we are of what's happening everywhere That's else and off the pitch the question about Qatar as well maybe we should talk about that because I mean you could frame what Alex has just said around that single issue. Yeah. How do you enjoy the 2022 World Cup in Qatar? Yeah. Sure. Is it possible to 
separate the part of you that enjoys sure. great football from the part of you which uh, is horrified. <laughs> sure. I mean, enjoyment is a complicated thing, <laughs> as I would say. And the way one consumes and experiences football is, you know, for me, is pretty multi-level. I mean, let me answer your question first. Like, well, welcome to 21st century capitalism. Mm. Like, what is true of football is true of innumerable things. We're all, you know, um, locked into yeah. networks of um, consumption and production that are super globalised and uh, super exploitative with enormous numbers of um, negative consequences. I mean, you know, every time I, you know, use my mobile phone, you know, or my uh, or my computer. I mean, you know, who dug up the coltan in some mm. artisan mine in the DRC, sweating and dying for pennies to make this thing? I mean, you know, this is, and this is an intractable problem that we place at every level. You know, particularly here in the heart. You know, in the heart of London, one of the kind of peaks of kind of global capitalism and consumerism. So we, you know, footballs. You know, this goes for a lot of stuff. Mm. Um, and, uh, yeah, I feel very ambiguous about it. Mm. Of course I feel ambiguous about it. Um, and, you know, I enormously enjoyed, you know, Tottenham's run in the Champions League last year at an emotional level, at a kind of, um, sort of, you know, tactical, nerdy level, uh, as a spectacle in all sorts of ways tied to my whole kind of, you know, a lifetime following Tottenham. But I'm also completely cognizant at the same time that this is a kind of deeply problematic, sceptical and a deeply problematic global business model. Is that so, part yeah. of why you write this stuff? <laughs> yeah, to I mean, resolve that tension in some way? I don't expect to, I mean, uh, is it resolvable? I mean, I'm not interested or I don't... Resolve it internally. Make, make yourself comfortable your to bit. a degree with your consumption of football sure. and your participation in the spectacle by being one of the people who brings this stuff to the fore so that the rest of us know about it? Um, yeah, I think sort of that's definitely, definitely part of it. I mean, it's to, you know, that's a very didactic kind of way of thinking about it. I'm, uh, I suppose my mission is to encourage people to put on a different set of spectacles sometimes. Hmm. You know, I think that's, as we should do when we think about what we eat, you know, and the kind of networks of agriculture and ecology and the consequences of that. Sometimes you need to put on a different pair of spectacles as well as like enjoying stuffing yourself. And that's what I encourage people to do. I also think there is, um, you know, the negative consequences will grow and grow you know, there is, um, it's a deal with the devil. Mm. You know, if you're going to have, you know, the kind of extraordinary peak performances of the spectacle in global and European football, um, eventually, in all sorts of ways, one pays price because the, the way I would put it is, you know, football in the end is a game. It's a game, it's a form of play. That's why we like it. You know, it's actually not about money and power in the end. You know, there is deep in all football cultures um, a sense that, you know, valour or grit or skill or talent or outrageous luck, you know, should determine events. Uh, and if it's determined by money or power, then, like, what is this? Then, then it's bullying or power games. It's not a game at that point. And that is, I think that's an incredibly powerful and important thing. 
you know, we live in a world where the imperatives of political and economic power are constantly <laughs> shaping all our value judgments and our lives. You know, and here's an alternative register of values that resists that, that is actually deeply pervasive. And um, if people value that, then we need to do something about it, you know, because um, the, there are forces at work and patterns of change at work already, as you say, you know, that have um, uh, wrought their effect in, uh, in Africa. Um, but there's more of that to come. I mean, more a whole series of problematic things, you know, um, corruption, oligarchy, abuse of political power, uh, control of the spectacle itself. I mean, the scale, you know, when you've got Manchester City contemplating facial recognition technology, mm. you know, as a way of getting into the stadium, you know, what, what, what is going on here? Um, I find that deeply and powerfully, distur- you know, disturbing. Um, that that should be contemplated. Presumably we kind of know why they're doing that though, don't we? I mean, isn't it like a excusable dry run for testing stuff that may be used elsewhere? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and also, you know, they want to have, um, I mean, as the Qataris at PSG have had, a very direct control of who they, you know, they let in and who they don't let in and mm. to control what goes on in the stadium. Um, and to, you know, again, if one values spontaneity, if one values, you know, grassroots popular creation of the atmosphere and the meaning of football, which is part of the extraordinary appeal of it, um, then these things have to be resisted and challenged. And I think, you know, pointing them out is the first stage in in doing so. This is an The TIFO Football Podcast is supported by The Athletic. The best place to read about sports online, whether it is. This is the bit where we talk about one. Alex, oh, um, yes. What is it? Well, uh, so I picked out um, Matt Woosnam's piece. It's Woosnam. Uh, what? I'm just putting my hands up in the air and going, it's Woosnam. I like Matt Woosnam. Oh, is that why you've invited him on our next podcast? That's why he's, he's on, the next, on the next podcast. So we're talking about this now, and we'll be talking much more about Crystal Palace on the next episode. With Matt, with, with Matt. Mm. Um, but uh, this one's very interesting, isn't it? So it's it's a general piece on on how to accommodate Wilfred Zaha in Palace's lineup. He's a very good dynamic attacking player when he's played wide. However, that gives Palace defensive issues because he's not fantastic defending, and obviously Wambasaka is no longer behind him to provide a degree of solidity there. Mm. So he's kind of being played off a second striker. Is it working? Woosnam contends not. I think rightly in my uh, opinion. What's really interesting here is this one particular sentence that I really liked. The problem becomes how to accommodate a player who doesn't truly fit the formation, but who is nevertheless the most likely to win you games when he does play. Mm. And this, again, I, I mean, it kind of chimes with the the Sebastian Haller video that we released today. Haller, Sebastian Haller. Exactly. Where, you know, maybe a formational change is the best way to yeah. get the most out of him. You know, what happens when a club has a kind of mercurial talent mm. who maybe wants to leave also, but who, who yeah. doesn't fit the natural system? So It's Matt, a conundrum. It is a conundrum. Matt 
goes through a couple of the possible options, well, I tell you which what, are let, interesting. Well, we're, I'm going to talk to Matt about this yeah. on, the, on the next episode. So do sign up to The Athletic, www.theathletic.co.uk forward slash TIFO, 8p a day. You get the 30-day free trial, so you can have 30 days to decide whether or not you like it. You absolutely will. Um, read some of Matt's pieces, because the next episode we'll be talking to him about exactly what you were just about mm-hmm. to say. Um, so thank you for listening. We're back to David Goldblatt now. And thank you, of course, to Matt Woosnam and The Athletic. Can we talk about Qatar? Of course. Specifically, what I want to know from you, and I think this is subjective to, to everyone, is I mean, there, there are two different ways of looking at the, the tournament being hosted there. One of them is that it, it shouldn't be allowed to be as a result of the various and significant uh, human rights atrocities that have occurred before this and uh, building the stadiums and all the rest of it. The other is that it should be hosted there because that is, you know, pragmatically the best way to uh, embrace a a different culture and to maybe um, liberalise, for want of a better term, uh, a place like Qatar over a longer period of time through togetherness rather than through, uh, you know... Uh, what's I'm looking for the exclusion. term exclusion yeah uh, where do you stand on that and is there an answer to that question <laughs> um, and the first thing to say is it should be in Qatar um, because it's time that the Arab speaking world and the Islamic world staged one of the world's great sporting <laughs> mega events you know Africa has had a world cup Latin America has had an Olympics obviously Asia has hosted a World Cup and many Olympic Games and the Middle East loves football on a scale that is comparable with anywhere in this world if not more so I mean the way in which it is woven into both political life and popular culture is really extraordinary and if um, uh, football and global sports of universalizing language and aims um, are, are to carry weight then it's absolutely time for that to be recognised. I mean, in a better and different world, you know, the Iran-Iraq Joint World Cup would really be the one because, you know, you have extraordinary grassroots culture and fervour um, for football in both of those countries. Um, but that obviously, that's not happening. So um, when Qatar first won the bid, that was my first thought. I thought, well, sure, there's all sorts of reasons to have issue with this, but that's a really good case you know, for um, for doing it. Um, I think the second thing about Qatar, um, how can I put it, that interests me that, you know, um, is that because it's in the winter, uh, the Northern Hemisphere winter, <coughs> it's going to be a very different kind of World Cup. I mean, because, you know, what's just extraordinary about the World Cup as a global event is not what's happening even in the stadiums or the host nation. It's the way it triggers the most extraordinary, you know, collective experiences and physical gatherings everywhere else around the world. Um, and it's going to be the winter in the Northern Hemisphere, so that's not going to be happening. People are not going to go out in the cold in the same, in the same way. Um, and then there's the question of public space in Qatar itself as well, um, because that's what has made... Uh, I think been fascinating about the last few World Cups is the degree to which the occupation of public space by both hosts and their visitors is an integral part of it. 
and the arrival of social media on a global scale means people are experiencing you know that public space in some sense vicariously um, and what is public space in Qatar? They don't know. You know, it's it's so not designed, uh, not designed for that. Um, I mean, in terms of you know human rights and um, uh, I mean, this goes for like which World Cup and which you know to defend the Qataris at this level, which World Cup and which Olympics would pass muster on those questions. I mean, really, China in two thousand and eight, mm. you know, um, or uh, Argentina Argentina 1978 yeah. I mean there's lots of you know Russia 2014 yeah. I mean we can come back to uh, sorry 2018 um, and indeed you know we know that all of the you know World Cups since at least 1998 have had well dodgy bidding um, procedures um, is, there, is there a scale though? Is there scale? I mean, I think where the scale comes is not on the dodginess of the bid, but on the working conditions of the people. I mean, that's the number one yeah. problematic issue. Yeah. Um, and I think there is, a, you know, it's worth remembering the scale of what's going on in Qatar. So they're spending something in the region of 250 to 300 billion which is more than every World Cup combined before. In fact, it's probably more than every World Cup and every Olympic Games combined. Does, does this include their, their new city and sure. stuff that's going to be used afterwards? You know, well, the I mean, you know, the, 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 uh, the, the, um, the lines like everything in Qatar between, you know, World Cup and other stuff, public and private, you know, ruling family and state, it's all very blurred. Um, so, you know, yeah, they are building an entirely new urban zone, you know, to accommodate two stadiums. Um, and so the workforce is truly gigantic. Um, and the working conditions have been absolutely outrageous. And we have a situation, I calculate, um, that even if we have no further fatalities between now and 2022, and depending on how much extra time gets played, in the knockout stages, with looking at a fatality per minute of football played, um, you know, of Nepalese, Bangladeshi, Indian, Pakistani, predominantly Sri Lankan um, workers. And yeah, that's a real problem. I mean, I am struggling uh, at that level. I mean, so what one can say in defense of the Qataris and the, we will see how this plays out is that you really actually have had a shift in Qatari working practices and Qatari policy as a consequence of the World Cup Are we talking the pressure about has the... not come from FIFA the pressure has come paradoxically from the boycott um, organized and the sort of you know breaking of transport links by uh, the Saudi and UAE led coalition who are trying to put you know Qatar in their place in the regional politics of, uh, of the Middle East and um, that has made the Qataris more exposed uh, they need more allies uh, outside of the region put the spotlight on them they need to differentiate themselves from what's going on in Saudi Arabia and so you had, with the backing, with the uh, the backing, um, the support of the ILO, the International Trade Union Movement, a number of human rights said, okay, if you do these reforms that you're saying um, you're going to do, this is in 2018, then then this is good with us. Um, 
the problem in football, as we know, is that it's the hope that kills you. I mean, I am, uh, I am sceptical, mm. you know, given um, how these things usually work out, that the degree and depth of reform, both in health and safety practices, but also the inequities of the Khalifa system, you know, the bondage, yeah. effectively, of having your passport removed, of being, you know, a ward, in effect, of a... Uh, of a um, local gangmaster who controls everything about your life, etc. We'll see. So there is some, you know, there is some, there is a case to say, well, the way it's worked out is that, you know, there may well be mm. actually some change and some lasting change that is positive, albeit a very high price of blood. Um, but I am, but I am sceptical. And I think that's something we all have to sort of resolve with Qatar. Mm. But I wouldn't want to make them... You know, this guy's pretty much, you know, like, let's think about watching the 2022, um, you know, Winter Games in Beijing, given what's been happening to the Ouija's over the last, you know, year. Mm. <sighs> I, how much, you know, that's like, you know, repression on a truly industrial scale. Yeah. Um, so I'm mixed about it. You know, at best, and I do think it is. I'm. We'll see how I feel, but I think you know, um, it's just yeah worth bearing in mind that there has been these these promises of change. We will see. Mm. But again, this is about you know one's got to keep one's eye on it. You know, that's that's how these people get away with it all the time. Is you say yeah. stuff and then everyone forgets about it, and, and then you take you know the pressure needs to uh, needs to continue. And this, I mean, I spoke to James Montague about this not too long ago. And he said something similar, which was, um, he said that, it, that were it not for the 2022 World Cup in Qatar, the, the, the greater world, the vast majority of us would have no idea what the kafala system even was. You know, yeah. Just by virtue of having a World Cup there, mm. you've already, um, already taught the rest of us about this thing and uh, you know, therefore various uh, public pressure, which has led to supposed reforms, I think many of which are already failing or have already been kind of illuminated as having not gone very far or not been seen through but the counter argument to that is that practices that have been long held take a long time for people who've been holding them for a long time yeah to uh, to loosen the grip so maybe we will see and maybe the 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 legacy of 2022 will be different but the book doesn't just focus on on uh, on africa for example there there's uh, various focuses would you would you tell us what was your favourite bit to research, your favourite bit to write, the favourite story that features in the book without, um, without giving it all away? The favourite bit to write was to write about what's been happening at FIFA and in the governance of global football. What has been happening? <laughs> <laughs> Do tell us, David. Well, uh, systemic and endemic corruption. I mean, football is uh, endemically corrupt absolutely everywhere in the world. <laughs> I mean, and again, that is not entirely new. But the scale, the scope, the form of it, again, is historically unprecedented. Um, and while there are lots of um, local reasons and local variants of corruption, um, the fish rots from the head. And uh, their most magnificent leadership has been given by the leading football institutions above all FIFA, which to some extent then imploded in 2015 with um, the biggest scandals, the biggest investigations, the biggest changing of the guard that global football governance has had in, you know, 50, 50, 60 years. Um, And uh, the fall of Sepp Blatter 
is the moment to sort of you know around which to explore that um, which happens in 2015 so what I enjoyed about that most was um, there are a lot of great investigative work done by very good journalists you know from Andrew Jennings without which any of none of this would be possible his contribution politically and journalistically um, is without peer you know to David Conn's work who did a superb kind of like try and put it all together survey fall of the House of FIFA because there are so many dimensions to this corruption um, and so many geographical kind of variants and connection between them all. So I thought there's no point in trying to sort of repeat, you know, repeat that. How can I, how can I sort of, you know, write about this in a way that is, um, that is illuminating without just repeating other people? And what I chanced upon was, of course, FIFA's movie about itself, which is called. Are you, have you with watched Gerard it? Depardieu? Yeah. With Gerard Depardieu yeah. as um, Jules Rimet <laughs> uh, and Sam Leith as um, Havelange, but best of all, Tim Roth as Seth Blatter. Mm. And um, the it's film. A great career move. It's thirty million dollars uh, is what it costs to make, so a low end for Hollywood, but nonetheless high production values, 28 million from FIFA's coffers themselves, mm. 2 million from the Azerbaijani Film Foundation, <laughs> um, who could see a good thing coming. <laughs> and um, I, uh, it's called United Passions, and um, mm. obviously it got slated in the press when it was released and got quite a lot of coverage, but I thought, you know, I'm actually going to watch this movie. So I sat down and watched it, and... On the one hand, it is absolutely the worst movie ever made, but it is simultaneously an absolute gem. Mm. <laughs> and it's a gem because you're what I'm watching it, I'm going, how did this script get written? How did this how did this insane melange get made? What is going on here? I thought I thought, yeah, all the money has come direct from the president's office. And the guys who are writing this script know nothing about football. And the audience, basically, is one man. And having met Sepp Blatter on a number of occasions and heard him speak and followed him over the years, I thought, this is Sepp's version of the world, uh, or as I call him, Uncle Sepp. <laughs> and I said, it's like, yeah, this is the version you know, told by your incredibly irritating uncle on a Sunday lunchtime, you know, a lifetime of Sunday lunchtimes in which he misremembers and miscalculates, you know, family history and turns it to his advantage. And here we go again. And it's, that's what's gone on. They've taken script notes from Blatter sitting in his office late at night. And it is his version. He's been concocting this version of his own rise and of FIFA's purpose you know, for the last 30 years, and someone's now going to make the Hollywood movie version of it. And having seen that, you can decode, actually, the film in a really interesting way to reveal what the real history of FIFA was. And as I watched it, I thought, you know, the thing is, the problem is, partly the problem with this movie is that it is the ravings of yourself serving drunken uncle. Um, but... What they really, the real problem is they've tried to make a Hollywood biography here. And for 30 million, do you know what? They could have made a series of The Wire. And that 
is the format in which the story of FIFA actually should have been told. So I had an enormous amount of fun thinking mm. about if you made the history of FIFA as a version of The Wire, how would that look? Well, have you spoken to Netflix like? yet? <laughs> I mean, you're the guy, right? You're the guy to. So I think the same thing with the that. with the whole the whole history of the, the Qatar World Cup, the whole history of the region. If you had 10 episodes hour long to explain these things, wouldn't sure. that make the most incredible television? I think, you know... What are got, we doing here? You've got a little, you're going to need some great lawyers, mm. but I think it's got real potential. No, I thought, you know, you could do a whole series on Latin America and the rise yeah. of Joao Havalanche, which, which would be, you know, the backstory, because that's actually the moment at which corruption in FIFA and the way power is wielded mm. um, within global football takes its current form. I mean, here's the master... I mean, that's the hysterical thing about um, United Passions, is that Blatter, you know, FIFA, uh, Havelange is rendered as a sort of visionary fool, and the man really getting all the work done is Uncle Sepp. Um, and this, of course, is complete nonsense, because the master of power was Joao Havelange, and, you know, they tell the story as if Blatter is the man who does the deals with Coca-Cola um, uh, that launch... FIFA into the world of commercialism. And you're going, no, dude, this is Havelange. You're being trained up as a servile replacement for the current general secretary doing your time at Adidas's political unit, as it was uh, as it was known. Horst Dazzler's operation, the man who invented much of this kind of politics. Um, but Blatter tells, you can see, it's like, it's Blatter's, it's Blatter's story. Um, that you're getting in the film. So there's sort of multiple levels of which you have to kind of re reinterpret to understand, you know, why does it, why is, why is it looking like this? Um, so yeah, there's a lot of potential. I'd love to do a, uh, a one on how does the money move? Mm. You know, how does that actually work? How does bribery really happen mm. in this world? <laughs> It's yeah. leaving watches in hotel rooms, isn't it? Mostly. Well, that's, you know, and, I mean, it, it, and still... Set wants his watches back. Yeah. Have you seen? He's been <laughs> no. complaining that he left like 30 really good watches Just lying in around. his office that were personal presents to him oh, over his many years right. as president. So if you like, you're figuring $25,000, you know, uh, for a kind of serious Swiss watch, you know, we're talking about tens of, you know, millions, millions of dollars worth of watch and he wants them back. I mean, the man is, I mean, that's the other, you know, dimension to which I enjoyed writing about that is that, you know, the, the way in which power corrupts and deludes yeah. and how uh, so many people at the top of football, uh, you know, they can't, what's the point at which you start believing your own you know, your own story that you know not to be true. But there's, mm. there's such your a, ears. an easy myth as well, isn't there, to sell yourself, which is that, you know, I am trans I'm using this global sporting phenomenon to transform the world for sure. the better. And it's a really kind of empowering and exciting idea. Well, to... Seth Blatter has that. I mean, you know, yeah. like one of his crowning achievements is, is, is the situation with, with Palestine, which is something which he can, you know, genuinely lean to as a as a something which improved football as far as he saw it. And I'm sure with all sure, of those the men as well... Palestine, Palestine to FIFA is 98 and Havelange is still in charge. OK, but Sepp Blatter um, totally claims it is his. You know, Blatter has <laughs> a kind of... Um, 
Like a, he's a split personality. He's a compartmentalizer. There's part of him that really does believe mm. all of that this stuff. This is what I mean. And then there's another bit of him that knows where all the bodies mm. are buried mm. and what you know what has gone on, what has gone on. Um, there's a parallel there to how we were talking about watching football with two different minds, right? Yeah. Seth Blatter yeah. is also a split person. We must remember that he probably he probably does love football, right? I think you know he does love football. I think he loves power and status more. Mm. I mean, that's for sure. I think he loves himself more. And watches. Um, he likes watches. He really wants them back. <laughs> you know, he... Um, <laughs> you know, he likes... You know, he has a... He's quite a charismatic person. I mean, you don't get to that position and have that much power without developing no. some of that. I mean, he's also sort of nauseatingly disingenuous, mm. you know, with his slightly folksy... Yeah. Um, Swiss uncle twinkle in his eye kind of vibe. But you also love your uncle, you know, however irritating. Yeah, he I've is. got beyond the love actually. Sure, I right. think in the uh, in the end, I mean, he had a sort of you know a slight cosmopolitanism that um, you don't find in some football officials. I thought his defence of the Vuvuzela in uh, the World Cup in 2010 um, was a very good thing, and he sort of does in his own strangely sort of Swiss provincial way get Africa a bit and has a kind of rapport um, with uh, with African football um, but yeah this is a man who knows where the bodies were buried this is a man who you know orchestrated the payment of um, absolutely outrageous inflated wages and pensions to himself and the three leading officials where you know we just sign off on our own on our own wages it was like pulling in 20 million a year. I mean, okay, it's, you know, it's official, it's okay, but it's like, really? But, but I mean, going back a little bit to what we were saying before about the, the state of football currently in terms of its quality, in terms of its global appeal, and was it almost the permissiveness and the corruption of, of FIFA that has allowed it to become this thing? Satellite television is the most important thing, right. I think. And the transformation of, you know, technologically, that is simply the most important thing because, you know, the kind of scale of audiences mm. that you can generate and um, the kind of money that you can generate um, from pay-per-view television, um, which may not be the future, but has certainly been, you know, for the last 25, 30 years, that is the singularly most important thing. Does that shift power towards the clubs and away from the governing bodies to a degree that ultimately might see the clubs turning around and going, do you know what, you do need to smarten up your act, we can't behave like this. So, <laughs> you, you um, guys, I mean, you know, Man City, Liverpool, Man United, Arsenal, they all get together and go to UEFA and say... I mean, you know, as we know from football leagues, um, mm, Manchester City and PSG in particular have been incredibly effective in shaping what UEFA do. You know, if you can, you know, run the thing or influence it to that degree, which I think they did in uh, the way they've been treated over financial fair play, why do you need to leave? You know, if you're actually pulling the strings so you've got that much kind of weight. Um, I think that um, clubs, clearly the top clubs, do have more power. I mean, I don't think that's, you know, an issue not just in relationship to 
UEFA, but also, you know, lower leagues, lower football clubs, the rest of the whole, mm. um, you know, football. I mean, when we say football, it's worth remembering, you know, often it's shorthand for, you know, the peak of the men's professional game. And um, there's a lot more going on. Um, and I think that even at the super clubs, even with their current ownership, they continue to trade on an idea that they're part of something bigger, that they're this, you know, it's not just kind of uh, mechanised show business here, that somehow we are part of a bigger organic whole that stretches, you know, from the peak performances of the male professional spectacle to women's football to the grassroots to informal football, which is what makes football somehow stand for more than just mm. people kicking a ball or just making money. Because if that were what the public, you know, and consumers believed, then they wouldn't. It wouldn't. It wouldn't work. You know. So they have a. Uh, they leave all of that behind at their peril. I think. You know, which is why I don't think you've seen. Despite, you know, I think we're coming up for 30 years since Berlusconi first started agitating for a European Super League. Mm. I, I actually don't see it happening um, because there is that kind of wider sort of cultural break um, for even the most kind of uh, ambitious, power-driven or profit-driven clubs and club owners. Mm. Um, you know, they know that actually what they have is quite fragile cultural capital and you mess with it at your peril. Well, one of, one of the best run clubs in the Premier League is Liverpool, you know, in terms of performance, but also in terms of the sheer intelligence of their owners and the resources they can put behind it. And in terms of what they're doing on social media and the kind of narrative that they're putting forward, they are profoundly rooting themselves in the idea of Liverpool just being a really good, successful community club. You know, yeah. it's, it's absolutely crucial to their self-identity. Yeah. yeah. So you can't you can't see that changing. I mean, well, it could change because people make mistakes and you can destroy things. You know, so I'm not saying at Liverpool, but sure, I think more but, generally, you know, things can be... It's easy for, you know, things to be screwed up hmm. uh, and squandered. Uh, I mean, I wonder what will eventually happen to Manchester City yeah. in that regard, who, you know, I have at one level, enormous affection for, you know, as the, you know, the team of the heart and soul, you know, the real Manchester, you know, the city of, um, uh, you know, the 90s in the third division where, you know, they're going 7-0 down and then they Sean sing we want to. eight. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, and longer, Sean I mean, you know, to. and like a deeper, richer history of also being successful at times yeah. and a lot of great football being played there in the late 60s and the early 70s. Um, and just a version of Manchester that is, you know, that is appealing. And I wonder, so far, you know, um, that hasn't been extinct extinguished um, uh, in Manchester or amongst the uh, club's fans. But how long? How long can it last? And I do wonder whether these things are indestructible. I'm not convinced that they uh, that they are. Hmm. We could probably talk to you all day. But we've talked for about an hour now, so maybe we should uh, wrap things up. But thank you so much for coming in. Really appreciate it. The age of football. Do you want to hold it up again for the people I'm, watching, I'm, Alex? I'm going to hold up both. Oh, we're holding up the ball is round two. Buy these books. You're so bad at uh, holding but, things in but, front of a camera. Well, I'm trying to do two there things you go. at once. Perfect. Right. Lovely. So this one's out already. Go and buy that. That's the ball is round. This one's out in September 5th. September the 5th. The age Buy of it football. when it comes out. Mm. 
please do. Uh, David, thank you. Thank you again. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.